Well, it has been such a joy and pleasure to be with you over the last couple of weeks, and for, for me especially, to preach the Word, to share the Word with you. We get to do it one more time this week, and then Emma and I are on our way back to California. But we've really treasured our time here with you, and we continue to think of you and pray for you even while we're away. I pray that the Lord would indeed bless and continue to build you all up in his mighty strength. Let's pray before we turn to the word. Our great God and Savior, what a joy it has been to just sing about the great salvation that you have accomplished on our behalf. It is all you, Jesus. It is all your blood. We could never have been good enough to be acceptable to you. Jesus, you had to do it all. You had to pay the entire penalty for all of our sins. And you had to give us your own righteousness. That's the only way we could ever be acceptable. Lord, you did that once and for all by your work on the cross. And then you gave that to us as a gift by faith. But Lord, we are charged to walk worthy of this great salvation. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be able to explain more how to do that as we look again at the book of Ephesians. And God, we want you to be glorified in our lives and we want to experience the joy of our great salvation and not have it be taken away from us by Satan or any of the demons. Lord, please build up your church now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, brethren, please let us return to the subject that we began speaking about last time of our spiritual conflict with Satan and the demons. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Ephesians 6, our section is verses 10 to 20. We'll do a little bit of review to start here. Remember, we're in the letter of the Apostle Paul to these new Gentile believers in Ephesus, Western Asia Minor. The overarching message of this letter, well, let's break it down into two halves. The first half of the letter is that you Gentile believers, he tells the Ephesians, and essentially he tells us, you Gentile believers have truly full salvation blessing in Christ by faith, by faith alone, just as the Jews also have. You have full salvation, inheritance, and blessing, as do they. That's the first half of the book of Ephesians. And then the second half, Paul's message is that consequently, you Gentile believers must walk worthy of your salvation calling before God. This isn't to save you, but it is as a result, as a fruit of your salvation. Our text that we've been examining appears at the end of this second section in Ephesians as a final summary charge to the believers, and really to us. Last time we looked at the introductory portion of this section of Scripture, verses 10 to 13. Uh, Just glance down again at those verses. In this part, Paul gives us one main command and then three reasons to obey that command. What was the main command? To be strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that to be strong in the Lord means to have faith in the Lord. As even I think Greg was just saying a moment ago, we do not have sufficient strength. You do not have sufficient strength in yourself to overcome the enemies that are before you. But as you rely upon the Lord's strength and act in faith, you are able even to move mountains. Or rather, God is able to move mountains through you and for you. And why is it so important to be strong in the Lord? 
We also heard last time three reasons from Paul that we might be strong. In verse 11, we saw that we must be strong in order to overcome the many schemes of Satan. The reality is that we have a supernatural enemy who constantly seeks to entrap believers by various lying temptations. He is a dangerous foe. But he can, and he must be overcome by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12, we saw another reason. We must be strong in the Lord by faith to prevail in our supernatural struggle. The people of the world have a different struggle that they're concerned about. They use temporal weapons to overcome temporal enemies for temporal gain. It's all this world. But our struggle is different from most people. We fight against demonic rulers. The demonic rulers of this evil world system. They are the ones who stand against us. And they are dangerous and powerful foes. But we don't use temporal weapons against them. We don't use mere human equipment. We use the strength and equipment of God. By Christ's mighty strength, we can overcome even the demonic rulers. And then verse 13, a third reason for us to become strong in the Lord by faith is so that we can keep standing in the evil day. It's to keep standing in the evil day. The whole Christian life is indeed a struggle against the evil one and his allies. But certain periods are particularly evil. They are filled with special difficulty or unique temptation. Our goal, our mission, is to keep standing even in those days. To hold on as long as it takes until the Lord grants relief. But to do this, we must be strong in the Lord. We must have faith in the Lord. Now, we ended our last time by drawing our attention again to the second command that also appears in verses 10 to 13. And it's a command that I, as, and that I tried to explain is really parallel to the first. Paul not only calls upon believers to be strong in the Lord, he also calls on believers in verses 12 and 13 specifically to put on the full armor of God. Now, remember... That term, full armor, refers to a complete set of military equipment. Not just defensive pieces of armor, but actually weapons and other military equipment. This armor is from God, and it represents for us complete provision and total protection from Satan. We have everything we need in this armor. But what does it mean to put on the Lord's armor, and how do we do that? I mentioned last time that put on the full armor of God is really another way of saying be strong in the Lord. As we'll see today, the pieces of armor that Paul figuratively describes are merely a more specific breakdown of what it means to be strong in the Lord. That is, to say again what I said last time, living by faith and in the power of God's Spirit will encompass certain attitudes or we could call them beliefs and behavior, symbolized by the different pieces of armor that appear in our passage. Now, you may notice on the screen that the title of this sermon today says Part 1. You could even think of it as a Part 2, uh, because we did speak about the introductory section last time. But the reason I put Part 1 here has something to do with what we're going to do with the rest of the passage. I planned at first to go through the entire rest of this passage with you today, verses 14 to 20. But after studying and preparing, 
see that for me to adequately explain and apply the rest of this text to you and for you, it's going to take two messages and not one. I hate to leave you with another cliffhanger as Emma and I head off to California. I have done this once before. You probably never forgave me, and I'm apparently doing it again. But the only other option would be, other options would be to rush through the text and not give you sufficient background, which I feel I cannot do, or to make you listen to a two-hour sermon, which I'm not sure that you can do. So we're going to instead do part one and later pick up part two for this passage. What are we actually going to accomplish today? What are we trying to accomplish today? Well, first we're going to read the rest of our text, verses 14 to 20. We'll then get some context and background, specifically how the metaphor of spiritual equipment is used throughout the Bible, because that's going to help us understand the way Paul uses it in this passage. And then third, we'll examine the first four pieces of spiritual equipment described in verses 14 to 16. So basically we're covering half of the rest of the passage and We'll come back and do the other half whenever I come back next time. It should probably be like Thanksgiving or something. But anyways, let's start with reading the, next, uh, reading the rest of the text, the rest of this section of Scripture, verses 14 to verse 20. So follow along with me as I read verses 14 to 20 of Ephesians 6. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in mind, be on the alert and uh, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Notice that the command in the beginning of our section here, in verse 14, is to stand firm. This is not the first time we've seen this command. It was featured back in verse 11 and verse 13. This is, again, a defensive term indicating resistance, holding one's ground. In fact, Paul uses stand firm three times and the related term resist, so for a total of four times in four, five verses. And that's significant. Paul is being emphatic with us. He really wants to drive home in our understanding our fundamental goal as believers, as true Christians, true disciples of the Lord, our fundamental goal is, is to stand firm against Satan and against the demonic powers. We are to hold our ground. We are to push the enemy back. They will come and attack. But we, by God's strength, are to repulse them. This goal of standing firm is to be clear and ever-present in our minds. Now notice the therefore that appears next in the text. Stand firm, therefore. Why are we to be so vigilant about standing firm? Well, because of what Paul just mentioned, what we just reviewed. Because of Satan's schemes, because of the supernatural struggle, because of the evil day. We're not ignorant of the challenge before us. We know it. And that's why we have the idea of standing firm so fixed in our minds. But how do we stand firm? Well, by putting on the Lord's armor, as Paul's about to explain. 
But here's where we need to answer a fundamental question. What is Paul's intended sense in using abstract concepts as Christian armor? I mean, because look at what we've got before us in verse 14 and following. We've got a belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, sandals of the preparation of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and a sword of the Spirit, which is also called the Word of God. Those different armor pieces all represent something abstract, a spiritual concept. And aside from the last piece, there's potentially some ambiguity about what Paul means. Are we to understand these terms as describing Christian life characteristics? Or are they instead to be understood as gospel realities to be appreciated and applied personally by a Christian? Let me illustrate what I mean by example. Take the belt of truth. Does the belt of truth represent truthfulness, that the Christian is to be honest and sincere? Or does it represent the truth, the gospel, Christ himself, right doctrine with which a Christian is to believe and apply to himself? Or take the breastplate of righteousness. Does it represent a lifestyle of righteousness in the believer? Or does it in fact, represent Christ's righteousness on behalf of the believer, which he is to appreciate, believe, and apply to himself. What sense does Paul have in mind when he speaks of spiritual equipment intended to protect the believer? Some interpreters, we try and figure out what, what are people saying, what are the theologians saying. Some interpreters lean one way, some interpreters lean the other way, and some say it's both. I first, at first, found myself taking that third position. It must be both, because I couldn't figure out a way from this passage to uh, rule out one sense or the other. But as I looked at how similar spiritual armor metaphors are used throughout the Bible, I began to change my position, change my perspective. So I want to walk you through, because I'm not sure exactly what background or what interpretation you've heard of this passage before. It is a well-known passage, but I want to walk you through the context of this metaphor so that you can understand, understand why I'm interpreting this passage the way I am and why I argue for that interpretation. This may conflict with what you've previously understood this passage to mean, but I hope you can see why I'm presenting it the way I am. To start this background study, let's turn to Isaiah. Turn, take your Bibles and go to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 15 to 17. Isaiah 59, verses 15 to 17. That's page 743 if you're using the Pew Bible. The context of these verses is a prophecy about the coming of God himself to the earth as a deliverer. In the greater context of Isaiah, we know this is referring to Messiah. The divine Messiah is coming to destroy evil and to destroy all God's enemies. But listen to how Isaiah describes the divine Messiah, God himself, in these verses. Isaiah 59, verses 15 to 17. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw. And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. That's the Lord Yahweh, by the way. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. 
Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Notice here that we see very similar descriptions as we do in Ephesians chapter 6. In fact, back in Ephesians, if you're using a New American Standard translation of that passage, you probably saw that many of the descriptions are written in small capital letters. That's the New American Standard translator's way of indicating to you that that New Testament passage is quoting the Old Testament. They're linking right back to this passage. But notice here that in Isaiah, the prophet says, God will put on righteousness like a breastplate. He will put on a helmet of salvation. And not only that, he's going to put on garments of vengeance and even a mantle, that is a long cloak or coat, a mantle of zeal. What do these metaphors mean? Well, in this context, it's pretty clear. There can be, in my mind, no argument as to how to understand the armor metaphor here. The armor describes the qualities of the wearer. And who's the wearer? It's God. God is characterized by righteousness, hence the breastplate. God brings and is characterized by salvation and deliverance, hence the helmet. God is characterized by vengeance, hence his clothing. And God is characterized by zeal, that is a jealousy for his own glory, hence his mantle. With these metaphors, the divine Messiah is pictured as a mighty warrior who cannot be overcome by evil, but instead routs and destroys evil. Or consider another text in Isaiah. Turn back further to Isaiah 11. This is page uh, 693. I'm sorry, 695. Isaiah 11, verses 4 and 5, 694 and 695. Isaiah 11, verses 4 to 5, we hear another description about Messiah, and notice what Isaiah says here. Speaking of Messiah. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Notice again, there's a similarity here in Isaiah in in the Messiah's metaphorical equipment to the equipment described in Ephesians 6.14 and following. Verse 4 describes Messiah slaying his enemies with a word. It's possible that Paul in Ephesians is alluding to this when he speaks of the sword of the Spirit. But more specifically in verse 5, we have a belt described as righteousness and faithfulness. This somewhat corresponds to the idea of the belt of truth. But do these terms here, describing Messiah, do they describe God's righteousness and God's faithfulness on Messiah's behalf? Or do they, are they intended to describe Messiah himself? Well, again, surely the idea is that Messiah himself is being described as righteous and faithful. These qualities characterize him to such an extent that it's like he's wearing them on his body. The context of verse 4 backs up this interpretation. Look Look what Messiah is doing. With righteousness, he will judge the poor. With fairness, he will decide for the afflicted of the earth. He's demonstrating his righteousness. 
and his fairness and his faithfulness. These are the actions of a righteous person and a faithful king. Thus, the armor must be meant to describe the qualities of the wearer. So are you with me so far? Looking at the Old Testament, looking at Isaiah, the very place that Paul seems to be drawing this spiritual armor metaphor, we see that the metaphor describes the qualities of the armor wearer and not external realities merely appreciated by and applied to the wearer. But we don't only see this metaphor in the Old Testament, we also see it in other places in the New Testament. Ephesians 6 is not the only place where Paul describes putting on spiritual armor. Turn, please, now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Once I get there, I will tell you what page it's on. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 5 to 8. So that starts on page 1183 if you're using the Pew Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 5 to 8. What's the context of these verses? Well, here, Paul is urging Gentile believers to persevere in holiness in light of Christ's imminent return. And notice what Paul says as part of his exhortation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 to 8. For you are all sons of light and sons of day, We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, at first glance, this parallel passage is a little startling. Wait a second, Paul. You've mixed up the metaphor. It's supposed to be the breastplate of righteousness, not the breastplate of faith and love. And how can you put two spiritual concepts on one piece of armor? And where's the shield of faith? Paul, what are you doing? Well, actually, this parallel passage is very informative for understanding Paul's usage of the armor metaphor in general. We do notice, or please do notice, first of all, that the general idea of a protective piece of equipment is more important for the metaphor than the symbol's specific defensive item mentioned. Let me explain that by example. If Paul says the helmet of faith, the shield of faith, or the breastplate of faith, the same basic idea still comes through. Faith is part of the armor God provides to protect you from evil. Now, Paul can slightly rearrange the specifics of the metaphor depending on his audience and what he wants to emphasize. So there is some significance as to where he assigns it, but he can rearrange the metaphor. There's no real contradiction or inconsistency in him doing so. Notice also that the three spiritual concepts mentioned here in 1 Thessalonians are faith, hope, and love. Now, besides, interestingly, paralleling the grouping of... uh, Abstract concepts Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember there, faith, hope, love. The three concepts here, they all describe qualities of believers as they respond to the gospel. As a Christian, you are characterized by and exercise faith. Just as you, as a Christian, are characterized by and exercise hope. What about love? 
Well, love could conceivably represent your meditation on and your application of God's love towards you. But that would break the unity of love with the other two terms. Why should two of the concepts apply to what a believer does and only the one concept apply to what God does on behalf of a believer and that the believer merely appreciates? Would it not make more sense to simply say that all three describe the lives of believers? The qualities, the attitudes of a believer? Besides, look at the context of these verses. It's about behavior. He says, let us not be like those who are of the night, who sleep, get drunk. Let us not behave like the people of darkness, but overcome darkness by lives of faith, hope, and love. Notice finally here that this hope is said specifically to be, or the the metaphor is, the helmet of the hope of salvation. This description suggests there is a connection between what Paul says here and what Paul says in Ephesians 6. There it's the helmet of salvation, here it's the helmet of the hope of salvation, but there's probably a connection. We'll come back to that later when we talk about the helmet. So then, thus far, we're seeing that the spiritual armor metaphor, as used in the Old Testament and as used by Paul in certain places in the New Testament, describes the qualities of the wearer rather than outside realities appreciated by and applied to the wearer. And let me give you just one more passage to drive this point home. Turn to Romans 13. Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. Come on, Romans, where are you? There we go. Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. That's page 1137, if you're using the Pew Bible. The context here is very similar to what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 5. Based on the truths of, based on the great truths of salvation experienced by believers, how is the believer supposed to walk? Paul is going to tell his audience, starting in verse 11. Uh, Romans 13, verse 11 and following. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, probably notice this sounds a lot like the passage we just looked at. A lot of the same terms and descriptions are used, but notice a few things. Here, we have two commands set in parallel. Put on the armor of light and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. These, again, are two different ways of describing the same thing. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is another way of saying put on the armor of light which is another way of saying, be strong in the Lord. Each of these phrases is really just describing walking by faith in the Lord such that our faith produces characteristically righteous thinking, speech, and action. Notice also, or to further what I just said, notice that both these commands, put on the armor of light, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are set in contrast to the same opposing idea. What is that idea? The deeds of darkness, evil behavior. 
The contrast is not specifically set against unbelief. The contrast is not specifically set against failing to meditate on the indicatives of Scripture, Christ's righteous work, your justification. None of those things are mentioned here. Rather, the contrast is between putting on this armor of light and participating in the deeds of darkness. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and behaving like the people of darkness. Instead of participating in those deeds, they are to put on this armor and to put on Christ. So all of this suggests, in order for the contrast to make sense, putting on the armor, putting on Christ, means, more specifically, to put on righteous characteristics and belief and behavior. Have you followed all of that? I'm trying to make a case here. Let me summarize what I've just presented to you. When we examine the usage of the spiritual armor metaphor in both Isaiah, which appears to be the origin of Paul's quotations, and in Paul's other writings, the metaphor is used to describe the life qualities of the armor wearer himself. What's the necessary conclusion? If that's the way Isaiah uses it, that's the way Paul uses it elsewhere, then Paul must be doing the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6. The different armor pieces described in Ephesians 6 verses 14 to 17 describe the believer's necessary life characteristics rather than salvation realities to be believed and applied to the believer. Now, the follow-up question. Could the armor of God represent both life qualities and salvation realities? Well... Truly no aspect of the believer's life can be divorced from gospel truth. For example, we indeed speak the truth because we've come to believe the truth. I'm not going to do one without the other. But to say that Paul intended to communicate with each piece of armor that the believer should both be righteous and appropriate salvation realities to himself, that's asking a lot of a simple metaphor. And it makes the passage's instruction extremely complex. I mean, it's kind of like you have to have like a whole model and system, complicated model going around your head. Just understand that. Moreover, we just don't see the armor metaphor used that way in other places in Scripture. So again, there is an indirect relation of the armor pieces to the salvation realities that we've come to know in the gospel. But I present for your consideration that Paul, in Ephesians 6, speaks only directly about the Christian's necessary life qualities via this metaphor of spiritual equipment. Now, the other big question. If the armor is supposed to represent characteristic behavior and belief, life attitudes, then why use the armor metaphor at all? I mean, why would Paul say, for example, that being truthful protects a person from Satan? I mean, isn't Satan's temptation for you to not be truthful? How can an act of obedience itself be protection from an act of disobedience? I think this question represents the great mental stumbling block that we have to this passage. But I think there's an answer, and I believe the answer is this. The schemes of Satan are not ultimately to get you to sin. Oh yes, Satan does want you to sin. But that is not his end goal. Remember what Jesus called Satan in the book of John at 
think I mentioned this last time. It says, Satan is a murderer. Moreover, in the book of Revelation, we hear about a demonic commander named Apollyon. Many believe, I, believe, I agree, this is likely another reference to Satan. And what does Apollyon mean? Destroyer. Satan is a killer and a destroyer. He has as his goal, he has as his core desire to ruin to, and to obliterate all that is good. Which is why he hates God. Which is why he hates believers. Which is why he does what he does. Consider Satan's handiwork throughout Scripture. Look what Satan did to Adam and Eve. He didn't just make them sin. He ruined them. And he ruined the entire human race by extension. And look what Satan did and wanted to do to Job. He destroyed everything Job had. And he wanted Job to turn against God. He wanted to turn Job into an apostate. Consider what, Dayton, what Satan did through and to Judas. He moved Judas to betray the very Son of God. And then, when Judas felt remorse, what happened to him? He committed suicide. It wasn't just to make him sin. It was to destroy him and to destroy even the Lord. Satan is a destroyer. He never brings any good to anyone, and his demons are no different. I mean, we could look at what the demons are doing in Scripture. We've got... The Bible telling us that demons turn men into lunatics who cut themselves. Demons are throwing boys into convulsions, throwing them into the fire, throwing them into the water, and turning professing believers into liars and hypocrites. This is the core desire of Satan and his demons. Is it any wonder that Jesus said he came? to destroy the works of the devil. You see, Satan's schemes are not merely to get us to sin. They are intended to destroy us. They are intended to ruin us. They are intended to enslave us. They are intended to rob us of all the great salvation blessings that Paul has spoken about in the first three chapters of this book. He doesn't want you to enjoy those. He doesn't want you to have those. By extension, Satan and the demons, they want to destroy our marriages. They want to destroy our families. They want to destroy our churches. They want to destroy our leaders. They want to destroy our teachers. They want to destroy our witness. And they want to destroy our joy in Christ. They are destroyers. They are murderers. Now, if we have such mighty foes, then destruction, our destruction, is their aim, along with blaspheming God. What's going to protect us from realizing their desire? What's going to protect us from being ruined and destroyed? Is it not being strong in the Lord and putting on the armor of God? Is it not characteristic life attitudes is it not characteristic holy beliefs and behavior? So I still hold to. These pieces of armor are indeed life qualities of the believer that are to be put on, not merely so that you don't go the way of temptation, that you sin, but that you are not destroyed, that you are not wounded, you are not injured, 
and that we as a church are not wounded, destroyed, and injured. Turn now back to our text in Ephesians. Ephesians 6. We can now move forward with our passage. Here in this passage are eight holy attitudes to protect you and to protect the church from the deceitful schemes and destructive desires of Satan. We see our first attitude in the beginning of verse 14. Look back at Ephesians 6.14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. If we, tar, if we are to engage and overcome Satan and his demons in spiritual, concept, spiritual combat, our first necessary and holy attitude is truthfulness. It's truthfulness. Truth ought to be like a protective belt around our waists. Now, many have said, and rightly so, that Paul probably has in mind a Roman soldier when he uses this armor metaphor. Roman Empire is in control at this time. They were the soldiers that everybody saw, everybody knew. So if they're going to picture a soldier, they're going to picture a Roman soldier. And the equipment that he outlines in this passage is indeed the basic equipment of a Roman soldier. So as we go through each one of these pieces of armor, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what Roman soldiers wore and how that informs the metaphor. In those days, Roman legionaries, Roman, Roman infantrymen, they wore leather belts. And these belts served various functions. The belt kept the soldier's short tunic from snagging on anything above the waist. The belt typically held the scabbard on the right side of the legionary's side, or the, held the scabbard for the sword on the legionary side. And hanging down from the middle of the belt were a series of leather strips covered with round metal studs. And it's thought that these hanging strips were part of protecting the legionary's groin area. Paul says, via God's spirit, that honesty and sincerity, truthfulness, will protect us, will aid and protect us against Satan just like a Roman legionary's belt. And this should not surprise us. If Satan is the father of all lies and lying, what better way to fight back against him and his schemes than by only speaking the truth? The irony, of course, is that people lie for what reason? To protect themselves, right? They are ashamed of something they did. They, they fear consequences. They fear people, and so they lie. But in so doing, they neglect to fear Satan, who loves lying. And more importantly, they neglect to fear God, who hates lying. Brethren, please listen to this. If the first piece of armor is truthfulness, then Paul's telling us something. If you attempt to use lies to protect yourself, know that you are actually throwing off God's armor and laying yourself open to the attacks and ruin of Satan. If you really want to protect yourself, resolve only to speak the truth. Let that be your attitude. Let truthfulness be your attitude. Granted, sometimes you don't have to say anything. But if you must speak or communicate in some way, speak only the truth. Do not live as a hypocrite. Do not try to hide a double life. That's playing right into Satan's hands. Protect yourself. Protect others. 
by standing only in the truth. This will require you to trust God. And it may result in persecutions and trials. But God will provide for you. And he will protect you from Satan. Jesus says in Matthew 5.37, But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. That is, if you say yes, mean yes. If you say no, mean no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Did you hear that? Jesus says that anything beyond the truth is not good, it's not neutral, it actually comes from evil. Or you could even say it comes from the evil one himself. When you speak Satan's language, expect ruin and shame to eventually follow. But when you speak God's language, when you speak the truth, Expect God's provision and your eventual vindication. So Calvary, what about you? Have you armed yourself with God's belt, with truthfulness? Or do you foolishly attempt to protect yourself with lies? Escape now from this scheme of Satan. If you insist on living as a hypocrite, if you're going to weave your web of lies, then know that the one that you're actually going to trap is yourself. Repent and be armed with God's mighty strength and his unfailing armor. That's our first holy attitude if we're going to be able to stand strong against Satan's schemes. A second holy attitude that we need to put on like a piece of armor appears in the second half of Ephesians 6.14. Back to the verse. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Second holy and necessary attitude for you and I to put on before battle with Satan is righteousness. If you will put on righteous thoughts, righteous speech, and righteous actions like a breastplate, you will be safe from Satan's schemes and able to stand firm in the evil day. In Paul's day, Roman soldiers were usually wearing segmented plate armor made of iron and steel, uh, iron and steel bands to cover the chest, the back, and the shoulders. This plate armor was near impervious to cuts and thrusts. Even arrows could not successfully pierce this armor. About the only thing that could was a ballista bolt. That's like a big catapult arrow. There's not much you can do against that. But this is great armor, and such great protection was extremely important for a Roman soldier because it The chest area is where the heart, the lungs, and the belly is. Paul says that a life characteristic of righteousness will protect you from Satan's schemes in the same way as Rome's famed iron breastplates. In some ways, perhaps you're noticing by now, this concept of the breastplate of righteousness, it overlaps a little bit with the belt of truth. A lot of these concepts of the armor do overlap with one another. Real armor does the same thing. They overlap. But with the breastplate, Paul is saying, if you will walk with the Lord according to his righteous way, then he will bless you, he will provide for you, and he will protect you. But if you spurn God's way and go your own way, if you ignore God's wisdom and assert your own experience or the wisdom of men, then expect to be pierced by the devil right through the chest because you're unarmored and your enemy is going to take advantage. He can't help himself. 
he sees a juicy target. Psalm 32.10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. Now, don't misunderstand me. The righteous will have trials and troubles. You might even have more because you're righteous. But the Lord will protect the righteous one even in the midst of his trials, even in the midst of his troubles. And specifically, he will protect that righteous one from Satan and from all Satan's schemes. The righteous one will not lose his peace. He will not lose his enjoyment. He will not lose full revelry and any of his salvation blessings. And isn't that what you would want? Would you like to be protected from Satan's deceitful schemes and his destructive way? Then put on the breastplate of righteousness. Repent of the ways you have trusted Satan to your own hurt. Lay aside the old ways of thinking. Lay aside the old ways of speaking and the old ways of acting. Walk as a new creation by faith in Christ and in the power of God's Spirit. Brothers and sisters, are you wearing the breastplate of righteousness? Though you're not perfect, is your life characterized by righteousness? Is that your fundamental attitude? Have you committed to following the Lord's way in everything, no matter the cost, because you know you can trust him, because you know it's worth it in the end? Or are you missing the breastplate? Or worse, do you maintain a facade of righteousness as if it were a piece of armor? On closer examination, though, your armor is cheap imitation. It's not going to withstand a satanic assault. It's not going to withstand satanic or Satan's ruinous desires. Are you obedient in some areas but not others? That's like wearing only half a breastplate. You're still exposed. You're still in great danger of Satan's weapons. Where do you need to repent so that you can be fully covered and protected by God's breastplate? The third piece of armor that we see, the third necessary piece of armor we see is in verse 15. Look there. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The third holy and necessary attitude for us to put on before battle with Satan is peaceful readiness. What I'm going to call peaceful readiness. This third piece of equipment is a little less straightforward than the first two, and it takes some thinking through. Roman soldiers wore a type of sandal boot with straps covering the feet and the lower legs. On the bottom of these sandals were short nails for digging into the ground, a bit like a modern cleat. These spikes, however, were not for running fast, but they were for keeping the soldier's feet planted firmly. These types of sandals helped the soldier keep his footing in the heat of battle. Paul says that God has provided us spiritual equipment for us to do the same against Satan. If we are to have firm footing, we must put on this peaceful readiness. But how are we to understand this phrase, the preparation of the gospel of peace? The term preparation can also be translated readiness. That's why I'm using that term. They're roughly equivalent. But what should believers exactly be prepared or ready to do? Well, some say it's readiness to declare the gospel. Declare the gospel that brings peace to other people. And they cite another section of Isaiah, which does use some related terms. 
Isaiah 52.7. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. Isaiah 52.7. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. However, the context of the passage of Ephesians is wholly defensive. It's defensive warfare, not offensive warfare. Believers in Ephesians are tasked with standing firm, not advancing. Moreover, our targets are, our enemies, our targets are not other people to rescue them from Satan, but actually Satan himself. We're to stand against him. Moreover, the quote from Isaiah does not exactly fit this passage, since there's nothing in Isaiah 52.7 about putting something on your feet. Now, there is a sense, of course, theologically, biblically, in which we do fight as Christians to release captives from Satan. But I'm going to argue that's not the focus of the passage in Ephesians 6. Here we're talking about holding fast against the schemes and desires of Satan. So I think we need to understand this phrase in a different way. A better understanding of the phrase, this preparation of the gospel of peace, I would say, is a readiness to endure whatever comes because of the gospel of peace. A readiness to endure. Because we have come to know and believe the gospel, the gospel that is characterized by peace, that sets us at peace with God and sets us at peace with one another, our attitude ought to be one in which we are ready to do anything for the Lord's sake and for the gospel's sake. I think of some related words in, from Jesus in Mark 8.35. Mark 8.35, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. You can't hold anything back. You've got to give up your entire life if you want to save it. I also think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9.12. 1 Corinthians 9.12, Paul says, But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Whatever Christ requires, whatever the gospel requires, I'm ready. However, the passage that sticks out most in my mind in relation to this particular piece of armor in Ephesians 6, this particular piece of equipment, is actually Philippians 4. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. You probably know that passage. In that context, Paul has just finished speaking about how God's peace ought to be manifest in the hearts and relationships of believers. And then Paul speaks about how the Lord has enabled Paul to be at peace, to be content with any situation. He says, Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I believe that this is Paul's sense when he's talking about the necessary readiness of the Christian the gospel should make us ready to endure any situation, to have an attitude before our Lord that says, wherever you want to place me, that's where I want to be, because I trust you. God's gospel ought to give us contentment, a readiness to do whatever the Lord deems necessary. And isn't that basic to being a soldier? 
soldier needs to be ready for whatever the commander tells him to do. But for the soldier who comes with pride and with various expectations about what he should or should not have to endure, he will find himself both at odds with his commander and vulnerable to the enemy. That soldier, when he finds things going ways that he did not expect, he will soon find himself saying, I didn't sign up for this. And he will abandon the field. Brothers and sisters, if we are to be properly armed against Satan, we need a gospel readiness to be wherever and to do whatever the Lord wants. If we have such readiness, equipped like shoes on our feet, then we will be able to stand against Satan's schemes and desires. So do you have that kind of readiness? Do you have that kind of preparation? Is your heart content no matter the circumstances? Or do you cling to a certain expectation, saying to yourself, I demand that this this condition be satisfied, or else I'm going AWOL. My friend, if you have such an attitude, you're laying yourself open to the enemy. Believe the gospel that brings peace and teaches us that we need nothing more than God and whatever God chooses to graciously provide. Let go of every desire, every idol. Submit them all to God so that you might say, Thy will, not my will be done. He knows how to provide for you. He'll give you what is good, and you will stand firm in the spiritual struggle. A fourth and the final piece of armor that we're going to talk about today appears in verse 16. Look at verse 16 in Ephesians 6. It says, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The fourth and necessary holy attitude we are to put on before battle with Satan is faith-filledness. Yes, I know that looks a little odd. I really wanted to have a ness because the first three do, but faithfulness has a different meaning, so I made up a new word. Our necessary attitude is faith-filledness. If you want to be less cool, you can just say faith but I'm going with faith-filledness. We are to take up faith like an ever-ready shield. If we do, we, Paul says, we will be able to stand against Satan and against his demons. And notice how Paul gives special emphasis to this piece of armor. He says, in addition to all, he places, or, so in addition to all, he's, he's kind of like giving it a little introductory statement, like pay attention especially to this next one. And he places this piece of equipment at the end of the first list of armor. He's highlighting for us this this shield. And he highlights for us just how effective it is. Look at what it says. With this shield given by God, we can extinguish all, all the flaming arrows of the evil one that is Satan might sling at us. That's a great shield. Now the Greek word used for shield here pictures indeed a Roman shield. A Roman soldier's shield. That is a large rectangular shield that, for which the Roman infantrymen were well known. These shields were made of wood, edged with iron, and given an iron boss in the center for deflecting arrows and for ramming into enemies. 
and size, these shields were similar to like a small door. They provided Roman soldiers with excellent protection from both sword strokes and arrow fire. In fact, when a whole line of Roman soldiers face an enemy and the Roman shields, and they're set with their Roman seals, it basically formed a mobile wall. Crouched behind their huge shields and giving only short, quick thrusts with the sword, Roman soldiers were extremely difficult to hit. I mean, they basically have a wall in front of them. God says, that's like the shield that I provided for you. And notice the reference here to flaming arrows. Flaming arrows were a fearful and dangerous addition to any battlefield. Uh, but they were well known in ancient times. The flames not only, not only added an extra bit of fear factor whenever you're shooting at the enemy, but the flames were a potential counter to shields because shields were made of wood. Wood burns. If the Roman soldier's wooden shield caught fire, that soldier would be forced to discard the shield and he would be exposed. If you lose your shield in battle, you are in a very dangerous position. It's not like the movies where you can keep on fighting with just your sword. No, you really need your shield. But there's always a counter to the counter, right? If you've got a wooden shield and they fire flaming arrows, what do you do? Well, here's what the Romans did. They prepared for flaming arrows by covering their shields with animal skins and soaking the shield and the skins with water. Skins, naturally, are averse to fire, and then when you make them really wet, it makes it even less likely that the shield would ignite. The well-prepared soldier then did not have to worry about flaming arrows on the battlefield because he knew his shield would protect him. It is the same for us as Christians when it comes to the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith that God provides is able to extinguish all of the devil's flaming arrows. So by exercising faith in what God has said and believing his promises despite what our eyes tell us, or what the flesh feels, we are able to overcome every scheme and every temptation that the devil can throw at us. With such a shield, we're invulnerable. That's only if we actually use it. It's only if we're actually prepared with it. For Roman soldiers, the large shield was understandably heavy. And if they had not prepared and trained with it, They could not use it effectively in battle. That's also true for us, isn't it? Is your characteristic life attitude to exercise faith in the Lord? Both the little things and the big things? Before the trial or the temptation comes upon you and the battle begins, is your attitude to walk by faith? And not by sight. Do you have your shield at the ready? Or have you not prepared to exercise faith at all? Have you forgotten or ignored the promises of God in Scripture? Have you paid no attention to all the examples of the Lord's faithfulness, both to believers in Scripture, the believers around you, and in your own life? When trouble comes, are you instantly putty in the devil's hands? Brothers and sisters, listen to this word. If you will not exercise faith in the Lord, you're like a soldier going into the battle without his shield. You are soon going to be turned into a flaming pincushion. The devil is going to wreak havoc on you. 
You will be pierced with many sorrows, you and your brethren. Where are you not exercising faith in your life? Where have you been afraid to believe the Lord and just be obedient? If need be, brethren, repent. Take up again the great shield of faith against which the evil one will have no recourse. So we finished looking at the first group of equipment in this passage, uh, describing the necessary attitudes that we must put on, God's panoply. If we are to be strong in the Lord, and if we are to stand firm against Satan, thwart Satan's desire for our ruin, for our destruction, and before the battle even begins, we must put on, as armor, an attitude of truthfulness an attitude of righteousness, an attitude of peaceful readiness, and an attitude of faith-filledness. Now, I wish we could go on to talk about the rest of the passage. We'll have to do that next time, but I'll give you a little preview. Four other necessary and holy attitudes that we see in the rest of the passage that we must put on to protect ourselves against Satan. The fifth piece, salvation hopefulness. The sixth piece, Wordfulness. Yes, I did it again. Wordfulness. The seventh, prayerfulness. And the eighth, alertness. Now, as we conclude today, Calvary, consider your own stance against Satan. Do you see how the evil one and his co-lords are trying to make inroads into your life, inroads into your family, and even here in the church? Don't think, oh, no, that's just other churches. No, he's trying to come here too. He's trying to spread ruin. He's trying to hurt us here too. Do you notice? Are you alert to that? Therefore, will you stand strong against him by putting on these holy attitudes and becoming strong in the Lord? Such is the only way to prevent Satan from threshing you and threshing us as with a threshing sledge. Remember what he did to Peter. I should also say that if you don't yet know Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, none of this armor is available to you. Satan's ruinous desires have free reign over you. It's only God's grace that's prevented you from being ruined and destroyed up to now. You felt the injuries, though, of Satan's schemes. God has prevented it from being worse just because he's a merciful God. But make no mistake, Satan and his demons will eventually ruin you. First in this life, and then eternally in the next. They want you to go to hell. That would please them. They will keep you out of heaven, away from God, away from all goodness and blessing if they can. But don't. Don't let their desires be the ones that win. Repent. Turn away from your old life, your old way. Be reconciled to God that you might receive all his blessing and his protection. My brothers and sisters, Satan's assaults will inevitably come and some days will be worse than others. But God has outfitted us in such a way that if we will only put on these holy attitudes, we will overcome and continue to experience God's salvation blessings unabated. May God grant this to us. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for this word. Lord, I pray that you'd protect this church, protect each marriage, family, person from the schemes and desires of the devil. Where he's already made inroads, God, I pray that you would bring repentance, uh, cause the people to reach out to their fellow soldiers for help because we are not in this battle alone. We are in it together under our head, Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Spirit, please work among your people. Deliver us from Satan. Deliver us from the corruptness of our own flesh that we might enjoy walking with you by faith. Amen.